on May the 8th, 1886, 137 years ago this year, Dr. John Pemberton produced the very first syrup and carrying a jug of the uh, concoction down the street to what was then called Jenkins Pharmacy. Uh, Jenkins Pharmacy then took the uh, concoction, the syrup, mixed it in with some carbonated water and began selling this very strange new, uh, new drink for five cents a glass. And that was the humble beginnings of one of the world's global corporate lifestyle icons, that being the Coca-Cola Company. I'm Tim Darnell. Welcome to this edition of ATL Vault, a series of podcasts designed to really showcase and bring new life and new perspectives into Atlanta's vibrant history. 137 years ago, Coca-Cola was first served on a in a small pharmacy, Jacobs Pharmacy, in downtown Atlanta. We're joined today by someone who I've known for a number of years. He is one of Atlanta's most decorated, one of the city's most recognizable public relations executives and officials, Bob Hope, who began his career many decades ago uh, and with the Atlanta Braves, uh, the newly arrived Atlanta Braves franchise here in the 1960s and went to work for Turner Sports. And then, Bob, I believe you left Turner Sports to go to work for the Coca-Cola company. From your from your standpoint, what has this brand, what has this iconic corporate giant really brought to Atlanta over the years? Well, I, mean, I think historically, uh, Coca-Cola has been Atlanta's goodwill executive or goodwill ambassador around the world. Uh, if you look at the the image of Atlanta, the the good things that have um, have happened here, typically Coca-Cola has been at the base. I mean, that's whether uh, you know the airport being built. I mean, it was uh, clearly on the land of Candler Field, but it also was uh, you know there was a time when there were three or four people you'd call in Atlanta to to get things going and make things, you know, good things happen. That really started with Asa Candler and then Robert Woodruff followed for years. And, and uh, you know, we wouldn't be the city we are today if it weren't for really those two people and also the Coca-Cola company. When Dr. Pemberton came up with the syrup and took it down to Jacob's Pharmacy and they mixed it up with some carbonated water and Coca-Cola was born, but I, I can't imagine that that's the same formula that they're using today. Don't you, know, you imagine that over the years, you know, there was a, may have been a few uh, tweaks, if you will, made to the formula? No, I think they've uh, had to tweak it. I mean, if you think about historically what was going on at that time, uh, Fulton County was a dry county, had become a dry county, and uh, thus you couldn't sell beer. And uh, when they looked at it and thought, well, you know, what's the opportunity? Um, you know, Coca-Cola, the syrup had a tinge of cocaine in it. So uh, as opposed to beer that might relax you, Coca-Cola would, <laughs> you, know, pump, you know, I guess, hype you up a little bit. So if you look at Coca-Cola in the very beginning and look at its advertising, you realize it's beer advertising. Basically, they were selling a product that was going to uh, take the place of beer, but then they realized that 
tastes good. The people liked it. And, and uh, you know, certainly the uh, Chattanooga folks who came in and, and uh, bought the bottling rights for a dollar, you know, literally spread it all over the country fairly quickly. And, and you know, you're talking about the, the bottling aspect. The bottling company really became its own corporate entity. And it was really responsible. Tell us a little bit about the the history of Coca-Cola and Bonnelly Company. Well, the Whitehead Johnson, who were two lawyers out of Chattanooga, just they approached uh, Asa Candler the first time about bottling Coca-Cola. And he, his concerns were that the quality in a bottle might not be as good as it was in the fountain. And he turned them down. But then they realized that Asa Candler was a tremendous sports fan, big baseball fan, uh, and so they went to him with a proposition saying, look, uh, if you bottle Coca-Cola, it could be sold at sports events. It could be sold at fairs. It could be sold, you know, you don't have to have a fountain operation. And so uh, on that basis, I mean, he looked at it, thought, well, let's give it a try and see what happens. So, you know, a lot of great things happened because of that. One is, uh, you know, face, uh, back then, owning s- sports teams and investing in sports was not nearly so expensive as it is today. It was pretty cheap. And so, uh, you know, initially, you know, he was selling it at the old, you know, minor league baseball team in Atlanta, Atlanta Crackers. But even more so, he saw opportunities, you know, Candler Field, the racetrack. I mean, uh, you know, that was his interest in that. It wasn't that he particularly loved racing. It was that big crowds would gather and you could sell them a lot of Coca-Cola. You know, he had a horse racing uh, racing track out on Briarcliff Road. Uh, the reason is crowds would gather. They'd buy a lot of Coca-Cola. And then one day uh, in the early 1900s, he read that the largest concrete structure in the Western Hemisphere had just been built at Harvard. It was uh, built across the river. It was a football stadium that seated 30,000 people. And he said, oh, my gosh, you know. 30,000 people, that's a lot of Coca-Cola. So at that point, uh, he initiated an effort to go find the best football coach he could and try to make Georgia Tech, which was really a trade school at the time, into a football power in the South. So he hired John Heisman away from uh, from Clemson. And uh, at Clemson at that time, you can imagine what a little big town it was with John Heisman's uh, passion was not necessarily football. It was he wanted to teach uh, theater to the heathen. So he'd gone to Auburn and he went to Clemson and he, he taught uh, theater and even uh, so that, but they made, uh, you know, they brought him to Atlanta to be the first full-time paid football coach in the U.S. and or in football in general. And uh, it, part of the deal was that he got a percentage of all revenue he generated. Well, uh, Georgia Tech had never sold a football ticket. <clears throat> they played at Piedmont Park, so they fenced in uh, what's now Grant Field and basically started selling tickets there. Well, at, at that time, football had no real rules at college as to when the game would end. You know, the two teams would meet at the beginning, say, okay, the first team that scores X number of points, the game's over, or whatever it would be. Well, he came up with the four quarters. The idea of four 15-minute quarters and a halftime, well, in his mind, what that was was four Coca-Cola breaks because the crowd would then go drink Coca-Cola. He installed the first PA system, put up the first scoreboard, which was a Coca-Cola ad, 
and basically use that as a model to to generate revenue at a sports event, which then became the model that was used all over the country. So Coca-Cola has been responsible for a lot of things. You know, without Coca-Cola, would the Olympics have come to Atlanta? Uh, my answer would be no. It just, you know, they get got behind the right things to do and big things happen. And of course, John Heisman is, you know, any college football fan would know is, is uh, the name behind the Heisman Trophy awarded to the nation's top college football player every year. Uh, you know, we're talking about Asa Candler, who bought the rights to Coca-Cola from Dr. Pemberton way back in the uh, late 19th century. Asa Candler, a, a visionary businessman, would eventually be succeeded by Robert Woodruff, uh, who was a enormous arts patron. We all know of the Woodruff Arts Center, but talk, talk a little bit about what Robert Woodruff's leadership meant to that brand, because now we're talking, we're getting into the middle to latter stages of the 20th century, if, I'm, if I have my dates correct. You know, Robert Woodruff was around for a long time, even when I was with Coke. Um, you know, first of all, Asa Kedler, I don't think, ever gets the credit he's due. For the time he was there, uh, he spread it across the country, made brilliant decisions, and really got him involved as the iconic uh, sponsor in sports in general, because team sports probably wouldn't be what it is today without Asa Candler. But when Robert Woodruff stepped in, Asa Candler stepped away from the Coca-Cola company so he could run for mayor of Atlanta. At the time, Atlanta had tremendous problems. You know, the Atlanta race riots of 1906 were horrible. Uh, you had the the, uh, the Leo Frank, you know, lynching. You just had some bad things that were happening, and the city was somewhat turmoil. So Asa Candler decided he, he would run for mayor, step in, and try to calm the storms, which is very important. Uh, Robert Woodruff came along, and he was Ernest Woodruff's nephew, and he he wasn't exactly expected to be a stellar character. I think he worked for white truck company, trucking company, but uh, there's a great l- combination of two letters at the Atlanta History Center, which are marvelous. One of them is the president of Emory College at the time writing Ernest Woodruff about his nephew, Robert, explaining why Robert had been kicked out of Emory, that he was a fine young man, but he really just didn't have the capability of graduating college. That it was no problem. The letter next to it is a letter to Emory from Robert Woodruff that went along with his first $150 million gift to Emory University. So, you know, Robert Woodruff stepped in and he just really had a vision that, uh, Coca-Cola was uh, far more than than just a, a a moment of pleasure that it could be, you know, in essence, was uh, global hydration. That it was uh, it would become the the symbol of goodwill around the world, but also the reality of the fact that uh, you know if people didn't drink liquid, they sort of shrivel up, go away. So that there was an endless opportunity to sell Coca-Cola and other beverages around the world. And if I recall from Gary Pomerantz's excellent book from Peachtree, where Peachtree meets Sweet Auburn, it was Robert Woodruff who told Mayor Hyman Allen Jr. after Dr. King had been assassinated in 1968 that, you know, Atlanta was going to be the focal point of the world for several days and the city really needed to, to pay a, a good tribute to Dr. King. 
and whatever the funeral costs, whatever city expenses were were incurred, that Robert Woodruff would take care of it. He would, you know, just basically cover any expenses. So he was really a a true Atlanta corporate icon, wasn't he? No, there's no question. Uh, you know, Robert Woodruff could have been president of the United States. I mean, he was very respected nationally and and in Atlanta. And they also did a good job. I mean, when you talk about the Martin Luther King situation, uh, J. Paul Austin was chairman and stepped in and really helped facilitate that too. But that was all in the spirit of Robert Woodruff. Uh, Robert, Robert, you know, he's what they always call him the, the best known anonymous donor in the world. Yeah. <laughs> all the good things that you, you know, you can't go to a, a school, a college, or almost anywhere in Atlanta, the art center. All of them have the Woodruff name on it because he established a a heritage of, of goodwill. You try to go to Emory University and buy anything other than the Coca-Cola, and I think automatically they kick you off campus. <laughs> it just, uh, you know, it, it just, it, you know, infiltrated goodwill into the Atlanta environment. Speaking of Emory University, uh, Robert Woodruff was succeeded, if I'm not correct, if I'm not mistaken, by Roberto Guizetta, whose name is on the Emory School of Business. And Boy, is that to really just kind of continue this long lineage of generational corporate Coca-Cola corporate types, if I'm not mistaken? Oh, yeah. No, Coca-Cola. Um, yeah, I was foolish when I was at Coca-Cola because I stayed for a while and I thought the stock really had gone up and all. And, uh, and Roberto Guzueta came in as CEO. And I thought, well, yeah, I don't know. Coca-Cola has done everything it can do. Maybe I ought to go try something else but then uh they uh he changed the entire uh concept of what a corporate ceo could do i mean in essence coca-cola stock quadrupled tripled you know went up tenfold over the next few years and uh coca-cola became yeah i remember going the first time to the new york stock exchange and looking at the floor and realizing that there was you know four corners of the you know, the floor at the stock exchange, one of them was called the Coca-Cola corner, that the significance of Coca-Cola uh, as an iconic company and corporate leader in the U.S. and the world was, you know, unmatched. As far as Coca-Cola's global image, we all know, you know, you can travel to anywhere in the world and chances are you're going to see some sort of Coca-Cola advertising. I remember I was in... Um, Nicaragua after a particularly devastating hurricane, and we uh, we flew into Managua, Nicaragua. We were doing some hurricane relief, and I know you've traveled all over the world in your philanthropic relief efforts, but I, I remember, you know, in this economically depressed city, you can still see Coca-Cola advertisements everywhere. What, um, what's been really the global what has been Coca-Cola's impact on the globe, you know, historically as a whole, both positively and negatively? Well, I mean, I think its impact uh, it is on several tracks. One is I really do think sports globally, and specifically the World Cup and the Olympics, have really ingrained Coca-Cola in the no- local court cultures all over the world. You know, you can't go to a sporting event uh, almost any place in the world and not see a Coca-Cola sign on the, in the outfield. That's, uh, you know, sports, obviously, is something 
here in DMB. But I think also Coca-Cola has been a corporate participant. If you go to Davos, you know, Coca-Cola is there. And, you know, its voice is important because uh, of if you looked at the history of multinational companies, uh, it's hard to think of another company that was multinational before Coca-Cola. You know, Coca-Cola has more experience in working in more countries around the world than probably any other com- country on Earth. I mean, they, you know, certainly the technology companies have come in and, and taken that position, too. But if you look at the, the mid-20th century, for instance, there were very few companies that really were everywhere. Whenever uh, Landor would do its research on the most recognized uh, brand in the world, uh, all the way through the 20th century, Coca-Cola was always ranked number one. And then there'd be others that were now on the list. Does a company, from your standpoint, face any challenges going forward, you know, environmental sustainability is a big corporate word nowadays, and, you know, there are, the company seems to be, you know, making a lot of uh, headway with this use of recycled plastics and things of that nature. What one of the challenges moving ahead, you know, in the 21st century and beyond for, for the company? Well, I think their challenges are are similar to any multinational company's challenges. I mean, there, there's obviously is a, a food, uh, you know, beverage, and, and they have to, you know, anything anyone consumes is going to be really watched closely. But, uh, you know, the, the environmental sensitivities, I mean, uh, you know, just perception, you know, <laughs> forever. I mean, I always I'll joke, I've, I've been at meetings of the CDC when they start talking about Coca, Coca-Cola how unhealthy it is. I always say, hold on a second. Uh, when Coca-Cola was founded in 1886, the average lifespan of a male was 45 years. Now it's approaching 80, 85 years. Coca-Cola has been around that whole time. It hasn't hurt <laughs> a lot. It's like, uh, maybe we could give it credit. You know, maybe it's Coca-Cola and it's ex- uh, extended life. But, um, you know, Environmental issues, uh, you know, clean water, clean air are huge issues worldwide for anyone. Uh, for Coca-Cola, the flip side of that is if you want to, you know, know how to purify clean water, go to Coca-Cola. You know, they are able to, you know, sustain the, themselves in basically uh, putting water in and then recycling and bringing water back in it's even cleaner than the water they took originally uh you know they'll get better and better at recycling and all that they're always going to have to deal with it it's uh it's a challenge in business but challenges in business in general are much much greater today than they were 50 years ago bob you've had such a, a long distinguished career and you know you're talking about asa candler not really getting the credit in the heat of the nerves i, I want to I want to give you some credit, just an opportunity to to tell us about your career from from the Atlanta Braves to Coca Cola and and the Olympics. Just tell us, you know, give us a, a history of Bob Hope's career. Well, I mean, first of all, it, um, you know, there are two kinds of people. Will Rogers said on Earth, there are those who march in a parade, and there are those who sit on the curb. And he said, if you march in a big parade. That's great, but you're going to see the same thing all the way down the line. 
But if you sit on the right curve and see the right parade, you see just marvelous things. Well, yeah, I've been blessed that, I mean, who would think that you, at 19 years old, you, you know, you need a job working your way through college and you go to uh, apply for a job at the Atlanta Braves and they give you one. And so as you hang in there, graduate from college, when you're 24, you become the head of PR and promotion for a big league baseball team, which took a lot of luck. And then suddenly Hank Aaron goes through the home run chase to, you know, break Babe Ruth's home run record. And you're able to just have the opportunity to be a good friend with someone like that over the years to a point that when Hank Aaron died, Dusty Baker and I were the only two non-family pallbearers in his funeral. And I thought, oh, my God, you know, this, I mean, it didn't hit me till that moment. What a privilege it was to be with someone like that. And because of that, you you know, you become good friends with an Andy Young. You, you know, you get to spend several meals with a Bill Clinton. You just meet a lot of people that you wouldn't meet if you didn't have that type of connection. Uh, after uh, Hank hit the home run and was traded away to Milwaukee, I thought, well, that's it. You know, what? Do, where do I go here? And then suddenly Ted Turner comes into my life, and I'm, I'm even there at the dinner when we came up with the idea of CNN, just to hang around him and be one of his direct reports. It was just an incredible privilege. And uh, as the TV took off and I was you know, working on the Braves, working on the Hawks, working on the TV, I finally thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to kill myself. I need to stabilize my life. So the most stable place seemed to be Coca-Cola. And I go there. And that was great. And I, But I'm thinking, wow, compared to working for Ted, it really wasn't that interesting. It didn't seem to. And so uh, to me, so I think, well, if I'm in the PR business, not really knowing too much what it was, yeah, I could work for Ted. I could work for Coca-Cola, which was a far more brilliant move than I thought. And then I ended up in New York at the you know top, one of the top jobs at the largest PR firm in the world, and then came back to Atlanta. But along the way, because of the nature of the work, you get to work with a variety of people. You know, I worked with uh, you know you can almost name them in business, and I've had some association with them over the years. It's just a privilege and a, uh, a blessed life to be able to go through that, just meet all these wonderful people and be involved in these very cool things. I was telling someone, I think Monday at our Rotary, uh, Roger Goodell spoke. Well, they said, you know, Roger Goodell. I said, well, when I was in New York, Roger Goodell was the intern who worked with Tex Ram, who was the uh, head of the Texas of the uh, Dallas Cowboys me and Joe Bailey to start the World League of American Football. You know, so you just you have experiences like that that are priceless. Well, and, and your contributions to the city, you know, are priceless. We are wrapping up this edition of ATL Vault here on Atlanta News First, because kind of a, a series of podcasts and articles uh, showcasing Atlanta's fascinating history and bringing new life and, and new perspectives to it. Bob, you know, just some final thoughts on on Coca Cola and its and its role in uh, the history of um, Atlanta and and nation, the national and the worldwide business uh, world. Well, I think with Coca Cola, it it was probably the first brand to realize that there was uh, that it was good for business to be bigger than life. You know, it's uh, if you th- think about the most altruistic companies in the world. If you compared Coca-Cola to a person and you said, do I really like this person? You look at the person and say, well, what good does this person do? You know, what 
How do they give back? How do they treat people? If you looked at Coca-Cola as if it were a person, you'd say, that's a company that gives back. It's friendly. It reaches out to help when help is needed. Uh, it does all the good things that you would want someone to do. And and that's that's why it basically surpassed Pepsi, surpassed most other corporations in, in its importance, not just to the business, but to the world. I think I was muted there. I apologize. Atlanta and Coca-Cola are synonymous with each other. Bob Hope, thanks for joining us. Thanks all of you for listening to this edition of ATL Vault. Thanks. I enjoyed it.